everyone has a story, I get them to tell it. Welcome to the Aaron Bender Podcast, conversations with media personalities about their personal and professional lives and journeys. Can't thank you enough for all your support, whether you're watching on YouTube or DBNA TV, streaming online at dbnatelevision.tv, 11 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m. Eastern, that's every night, or DBNA TV app on Amazon Fire, Apple TV, or Roku, or listening on your favorite platform. Before we get to my conversation with Melissa McCarty, a little about my story. I'm a widowed dad of two girls who just lost their mom, a grieving husband, a man in recovery, trying to reconnect with the world with fresh eyes, faith, and perspective, a college journalism professor, a white guy in a world of injustice, a 20-year broadcast media veteran who had his dream job and then lost it. A year and a half ago, God gave me a gift, an opportunity to stop, step back, and breathe so I can learn about love, vulnerability, forgiveness, grace, self-care, patience, and understanding. Melissa McCarty is a journalist and writer, fellow Cal State Northridge graduate. She spent several years in local news, but since breaking free, she's written a book as well as the eight-part Audible series I talked with Carrie Kasem about recently, Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem. She's also one of the hosts of the Killer Genes podcast. You look great. Um, Thank you. My lighting is Oompa Loompa. Is it Do you have orange? A, well, I'm colorblind, so I'm not the one to ask. I didn't know that about yes. you. Yes. Yes. It's fine. I mean, it'll you, do. You look tan. I mean, that's. Well, I am. The idea, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. That that would yeah, be the more. extent. You look tan. <laughs> okay, good. I like your backdrop. Oh my gosh. Sorry about the confusion. Oh no, it's no big deal. It worked out three o'clock is fine. And I'm not one to waste a good shower, but that's where we're at in life is like, if I have showered for you, we're doing this. Listen, writers don't like to shower. We bathe in our filth because it gives us grit when we write. And but in life in general, if I shower, I'm going. I'm not canceling. But if you cancel on me last minute, I'm the first thing out of my mouth. Not like, is everything okay? Did something happen? It's like, but I showered. <laughs> I'm leaving all this in, by the way, because it's great for the podcast. It's a great way to start it. I wanted to ask you right off the bat uh, about working on Bitter Blood Kasem versus Kasem with your bestie, Carrie Kasem. How was it working on that? And you, I mean, you've worked on so many projects over the years. This is one other than your book, and we'll get into that. This is one that I think was probably the most personal for you. How difficult was that or how easy was that because you were so close to it? You know, it's so interesting, the response that I've been getting with Bitter Blood, because, you know, I've been on television my entire career national shows i've done some incredible stuff but every time people hear about this or they listen to it they think this is my my a pinnacle this is i've made it now you know because i did this eight-part audible series and i'm i'm very honored it's just fascinating what kind of sticks with people and what stands out and what doesn't but it's a different platform for me and honestly um the stress wasn't so much doing it it was okay the writing style will be different yes it's going to be a much different way of writing and piecing together a story you know because i did come from crime watch daily where i was allowed actually so i went from like 90 seconds of storytelling 
to a full hour with Crime Watch Daily to an eight-part series. So it was just wrapping my brain around the task. And I do have a process. I'm like, you know, I freak out about it. I get super anxious and I have these moments where I'm like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, God, it's too much. But it's just my process. You're such I a know, diva. I know oh, I my can God. Do it. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> because, well, it's so funny because I know the story. So first of all, it would have been, there are so many talented writers in this country, right? It would have been difficult for any writer to come in and do the bitter blood because of all the details of years worth of stuff that I witnessed firsthand. And I was either living it with her or I saw it or I looked into it, you know? So it, if you didn't know the minute details, the story wouldn't be as good as it is now. And that's why when we see the hundreds of comments from people, it's like so addicting, I binged it. It's because I knew details that I, you really have to see it and live through it. And that's why I was the perfect choice, you know, to do this project. So it was a huge honor for me and her team, incredible, AYR Media, Aliza Rosen, Carrie, they let me do my thing. They came in when they needed to, to help. And it was just such a magical experience. And it is, it's, it's the height of my career at this point. I'm more proud of this than I am of my own book. Well, let's talk about that. Um, um, the difference between writing an eight-part series that you know is going to be on Audible, you know it's going to be voiced, and Martin Cove, by the way, I mean, if you're going to have, uh, if you're going to have Sensei, I, I should say, if you're going to have anybody voice uh, anything, and that, I couldn't believe that he was that this was his first project, that he he had never done any kind of audiobook before. I'm surprised. It's interesting because my voice laid it down as a as a placeholder of what we wanted to sound like, you know, because it is kind of like a murder mystery in a sense, yeah. you know, with the way that the family feels. And so when, you know, Martin came into the picture, we weren't sure, but boy, did he take it to another level, yes. you know, because he just brought this life to it in this drama and this bigger feel than I could have ever brought. And it was so powerful. And now he wants to do more things like this. And I think this is a good wheelhouse for him because he's so good at it. He's just such a naturally born storyteller. And not only does he have like a half a million followers in his, what I'm not going to say his age, but he, you know, he, he is just killing it, especially in the Cobra Kai yeah. series, which I binged couldn't get enough of. I finally He's finished. So yeah. I, I, it, it took me a while to get to it. It took me a while to not because it was bad, but because life. Yeah. Um, and, and then the last three or four episodes, just to see his character uh, really kind of rise to, okay, it's not, he's not just going to be this kind of side character. This is now. Lead. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, he took this project to the next level. Carrie mentioned him because, you know, he was the one that connected us to the uh, private eye, mm -hmm. uh, Logan Clark, which helped find Casey when, you know, he was missing, helped find his body when his body was missing. He played a huge role in all of this. And he's just an incredible human that brings uh, so much to people. He tracks down missing and kidnapped children all around the globe, you know. So there was this cool connection between all of us. But, you know, I, I wasn't sure when I heard that first take, I thought, wow, this is going to be huge just because of his voice and the, what he did to my words. Let's then talk about the, you know, we met, you mentioned you've written a book. 
you've done 90 second packages for local news. You've done hour long uh, investigative pieces for crime watch daily. Uh, the book making of a crime reporter, you know, that you're, you're pouring yourself into that. You're self publishing your talk about that process. So that was also a different level of storytelling and most difficult. And it took me over five years to even write that because it was my story. And it's really hard to be objective as an editor, you know, and say, okay, what story should be in, what story should be out? What's the flow here? What's too much? Um, you know, it, it's very difficult to self edit. And um, it was also very emotional for me. I also narrated Crime Watch Daily, this national crime show I was on. They were so kind to me. They gave me their audio booth um, and a tech person, a good friend of mine, three days to go in so I can narrate my own book free of charge. And that was emotional. And you could see, actually hear my voice cracking in a few chapters when I'm narrating certain portions that give me chill bumps, you know, to this day. But also, you know, as a writer, I think my writing style is known for evoking some kind of emotion, making people feel things. And I'm not just saying that for myself. When I, for example, read all the hundreds of comments on Audible uh, for the eight-part series, that if people, are, their responses and their comments are so emotional uh, and they're so angry, um, or they're so, you know, moved by this um, or inspired. I know that I'm a good writer and I've done my job, right? So I also felt, you know, moments where I was tearing up writing the Casey Kasem story. Also, when I was writing my own book, The Making of a Crime Reporter, I want to hit that emotion. I might, I might not be the most talented writer, you know, structurally, but I'll make you feel something and I'm good with that. And it's just getting the writing style down and a lot of journalists need to know you have to evolve. If you want to be a one trick pony, don't. But, you know, that was never my thing. I want to be universal in talent in the projects that I can do. So you have to evolve and get out of your comfort zone to do it. What are some of the things as you think about writing that book and you look back at your own life and you think about voicing that book in that audio booth that still gives you goosebumps, what are a couple of things that really come to mind that uh, helped shape you into the person you are today? I think it's really emotional strength, and I'm sure you can understand that as well. I mean, you and I were bred in a very tough, unforgiving industry of, of news, right? And we really had to car you know, compartmentalize and, um, you know, frankly, I think it's a lot of, you know, aspects, characteristics that a lot of women don't have to do, but it was a very high stress career that I was in, um, dangerous at times and stressful. And then my home life was very emotional uh, and stressful as well. And so I, I grew emotional strength and I'm able to handle life uh, better now. I mean, if someone says like, you know, you, you seem so nonchalant about it all. It's not that I'm nonchalant. It's just you can't provoke me anymore. I'm not going to, you know, fall for your drama or get emotionally unnecessarily provoked, you know, when life is bigger than that. So the small things don't affect me anymore. And I don't know if, if that, you know, occurred in your life, but you really see life and people in scenarios day to day differently yeah. from our industry, but also our personal lives that made it even more difficult. You know, yeah, and and I mean, you, you talk about um, you know things at home even before you are, were a reporter as a teenager. The things 
you witnessed the things, you know, involving your siblings. I mean, it just, it, it's intense. I mean, at the, at the, at the, at the very least, I think intense would be a word for it. Yeah. It's so funny. I was, um, I, I still go, you know, when I have dinner dates, cause you know, I'm single, I'm out there. I go on dinner dates with people or I'm out with guy friends, um, that I cherish so much their opinions. And, and I, every now and then I get, you know, you're, you're pretty intense, but it, it's not like I used to get before it was like a negative thing. You know, I was aggressive and I was just used to going after people. And then, you know, I was always had this armor around me for my personal stuff and my career stuff and no one's going to penetrate me. And, you know, but now when pe people kind of laugh, like you're kind of intense, huh? It, and, but I now know that it's because, um, I'm always present and in the moment because I cherish life because it could be taken. You know, the emotional traumas have been there, done that, as have you. So now it's like, I'm going to look you in the eye the entire time. I'm not going to look off and be LA. I'm going to be in your conversation and be present and ask questions and, you know, thought provoking things. And that's a lot for some people that aren't used to that. Yeah. So now it's like the intensity has stayed in me, but I've learned to just carry it through in a positive way. Whereas in the past, it was very negative. You know, I had a, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder and I had a, I had a rough go at trying to balance the two worlds. What, what created that pieces. chip? It, it was just growth and having the tools, which I never had before. So learning through uh, watching people that I admired and even uh, motivational speakers or people that I find profound uh, you know, Jay Shetty is something I'm listening to all the time now, and he brings me great wisdom and insight, just reminders that I need day to day. But when, throughout the years, it was just feedback from people that loved me enough to say, you know, to point something out. And so I would say, well, oh, I don't I don't want to make you feel that way. What do I need to change? What am I missing? I'm missing the tools. I'm missing um, admitting that I'm wrong. I'm missing you know, just taking a moment to step outside of me, put myself in your shoes and see things from a 360. And also forget about the pettiness of what could be the, uh, you know, an issue, but it's not the underlining issue. So really seeing things for what they are and brushing things off. You know, if someone says something that I think is offensive or hurtful, the old me would have been in their face about it. And now I just think, you know, they didn't mean that. Or if they did, they're probably having a really bad day. And I hope it gets better, you know? Yeah. And not letting, yeah, not letting other people dictate your energy. Or my choices, my opinions, anything about my life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, when I left the business, I be, my true self came back. And that was feedback from a lot of people. I'm funny and it's just, and I'm really chill, but that wasn't the person that was coming across at all because I had such an intense life. So when I left the news industry, I think like my true self really came back and I started to figure out who am I without the title? Cause that was big for me. I grew up having value in myself only because of the title that I carried. And I, I used to have people that introduced me by my title before my name. And I kind of equated success to um, what I did for a living, yeah. not how I treated people who I, who I was in life. I didn't even know who I was in life besides, you know, the correspondent. Right. Yeah. And, your your and career so, is your life. Your life is your career. Oh, right. 
that, that's who I was. And so when I left the industry in a not ideal situation, I had to relearn myself. It's, you know, most painfully just as a woman, you know, what are my wants outside of career? It's great to be driven and have passion, but who else am I? So I don't, did you have this weird identity crisis when you left news? Oh, oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, again, not under ideal circumstances and I don't want to suggest that, um, you know, I, I, that I left under my own volition. I, I was fired and rightfully so. And, but it took me, it took me, uh, gosh, probably several months to realize, okay, I am not news and news is not me. You know, it's my, my identity is husband and father. And for so long, those were like second, third, fourth behind. Oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm on the radio first. Yeah. No radios first, radios first radio. And it, you know, as I say in the intro to the podcast, you know, losing that job was a gift because it basically was, was God telling me, Hey, um, this, this whole thing you've got going right now, uh, outside of the four walls of your home, not important because guess what? Two months after you lose your job, you're going to, uh, learn with your wife that her breast cancer has returned. And then two months after that, the pandemic will take hold. So you're going to be staying home anyway to take care of your daughters as they are going to school at home. And, and so sometimes we, you know, we, we are, sometimes we are forced to remove ourselves from the identity of career and other times, uh, you know, not so easily or whatever. Um, People kind of make that choice by themselves, but rarely, honestly, rarely is it anything but forced because career becomes so in, um, entrenched in our identity, especially in the American culture, where it's like, you know, what do you do? You know, that, that's like the first question that most people get asked when like, oh, yeah, so what is it you do? Rather than tell me about yourself, you know? And that's such a shame. And I'll be real with you too. You know, I wasn't fired. I was let go, you know, because I was working without a contract, but it was, you know, I was wronged and I'm not going to go into it. You know, it's, everyone knows about the news industry at this point, it's in the book and I won't rehash that, but I I was definitely betrayed, you know, after all the years in sacrifice and the life risking near death moments that I gave, you know, that station but it was a gift for me as well to go and find uh, my next purpose, which happened to be a much, much, much bigger platform and yeah. where I belonged and wanted to go anyway, although it was a scary transition. But I regret the loss of, I hate that word regret. I wish I didn't sacrifice so much, that being my family yeah. and love. You know, and I think you learned that the hard way as well. Did you find that? you know, when your wife finally did pass, you had made up for lost times and those times where your heart was there, but your mind wasn't. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, um, by the time she passed, we were stronger than ever. 
stronger than ever. And, and I, I feel like she knew that, um, which might be why her body and soul said, okay, we can, we can go, you know, that, that might be why she was able to let go, you know, obviously not, not by choice, but when we went to the hospital on election night, I, I, I feel like she knew. I feel like she knew that she, she probably or possibly likely won't come home. That's not to say that there wasn't hope. I mean, the, the, the morning before she stopped breathing, she texted me which clothes she wanted me to bring uh, for going home. You know, wow. and I, I I mentioned that when uh, when Carrie was was on the podcast, like those, it's really odd. You know, all the different experiences family has as their loved ones pass. You know, we we, it's not that we had every expectation that she was going to come home, but she texted me just hours before she stopped breathing. Hey, could you make sure I have going home clothes, please? And that's this. why it's that concept of everything being so sudden and it affects us more because being in an industry, you know, let's be real. It's centered around tragedy and loss of life. And so we see it more so how quick it is and how fleeting it is. But yeah, I mean, to have something so unexpected jolt you, Um, you were telling me we never got into this, but you said your wife was preparing you for her passing life lessons to oh, continue yeah. on in her memory what was that for you as a father or for you as a man yes <laughs> yes oh. uh, on on many levels many levels i mean I, I spent uh the majority of my life living with anxiety that i didn't really recognize until just the last couple of years um you know self-inflicted anxiety of just yeah. trying to control outcomes and um, manipulate the people around me so that I wouldn't get hurt, you know? Oh, so, same yeah. page from my book, yeah. yeah. And, Including your family? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because I, 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 I didn't want anything bad to happen. And in doing so, you and, and Wait, I- Wait, is that because of our industry, you think? We see so many bad things or is it rooted prior to? Oh, it's rooted prior to. Rooted prior to, I mean, I th- I feel like our industry um, helped. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it just fed that fire. It just absolutely fed that fire. And so, you know, you just wanting to uh, protect the people, protect myself, protect reputation, protect livelihood, mm-hmm. all the different things that go along with it. And um, you know, it, it just it 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 got to the point where uh, she recognized last year, especially. She's like, hey, you've you've been doing a really good job of not letting yourself feel the bad things that happen in life. And in doing so, you prevent yourself from feeling the good things. Because you're not feeling at all. Right, because you're not feeling at all. I mean, I, I was just texting with some friends over the weekend, like the idea that that life is feeling everything. It's feeling the highs, it's feeling the lows, it's feeling everything in between because life is everything. It is the sum total of everything. And if you try to numb yourself from one aspect of life, 
then you numb yourself from all the others as well. But it's also many people, you know, myself included years prior, I didn't have the tools to feel those things in a healthy way. Yeah. And a lot of people do self-destruct and they do, um, you know, things that are very damaging to their heart and their bodies because they don't know how to fully go through that right. without turning to say drugs or alcohol or, uh, you know, behaviors, womanizing, you know, what, just devoting themselves of certain things right. and just staying within the soul. So did you have to find the tools to go through those emotions and yeah. feel it out? Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, the major things that's, that was other than my two daughters, that was my wife's biggest gift to me was just her willingness and patience to kind of sit me down and be like, Hey, this is, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. This is, this is why you're experiencing. I mean, she, she basically took on the role of a therapist having, you know, you know, we're together. What is it? 2020. So almost 11 years. Um, she's like, I've, I've got, I've got some pretty good insight as to why it is you are the way you are. Um, and I'm just so eye-opening. And, and was once... she strong in those moments? Was it lighthearted? Was it, I'm concerned for you? Um, listen to me. I mean, she's sick while she's doing yeah, this. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there was no, nothing lighthearted about it. I, right. That, and that, that was one of my but problems. Were they serious conversations? Very serious or... conversations. Okay. Yes. Oh yeah. Very serious conversations. Um, I mean, up, up to and including uh, the, the night or two before she stopped breathing. And I say stopped breathing and not passed because uh, she stopped breathing on a Tuesday evening and didn't pass until early Thursday morning. So, right. um, th yeah, that Sunday or Monday evening, uh, there were conversations in the hospital room about, hey, you know, what, what kinds of conversations will you have with our daughters when you know, when this happens or, you know, these scenarios or hypotheticals, you know, what kinds of conversations are you going to have with your parents? And, and, you know, my, Ooh, that's, oh, sorry. That's I, in me. I, I, I know, I know. And, and, and that's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just, she, that's what she, is on her mind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, wow. you know, I, I've so, had I mean, it conversations would be with her sisters. Disregard right. And not, have it pierce all the way through register and be like, I got this. You know? yeah. And, and yeah. there, there are days when I wake up and I, I need that conversation again, you know, whether I run it back in my head or I wish for her to return to have that conversation with me again, or to, to continue to, uh, to talk about it and to dive deeper and to, you know, I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before I would, I'd love for her to be able to see how things are now because I feel like she'd be pleased with how things are now. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really do. I really do. Um, this guy. But it's also something that, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. If you've gone right. your entire life a certain way, although you had a very profound emotionally, you know, it's what's the word for? I don't even know the word that it's just such an emotional thing. It, if it's not fully 
operating within you immediately. It's okay. As long as you stay the path. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, and, and I think also just the, the idea of accepting evolution, accepting change and accepting that it's okay to not be who you used to be, whether that's 30 years ago, 30 days ago, or 30 minutes ago. Well, and why would anyone doubt that? Who wants to stay the same person? Well, I, because people fear change. People fear like, okay, if I stop doing something or if I start doing something, then the anxiety of what does X, Y, and Z look like, that anxiety kicks in, that fear kicks in, and then people don't let themselves evolve. Well, it's the fear of the unknown. Yes. Yes. And it's also, once again, trying to control an outcome yep. that is unforeseen. Exactly. And once you get past that, and I, you know, I've and the, actually being in my business has helped put me, because I've been uncomfortable my entire career. I, I've been uncomfortable my entire life, you know, just not knowing what bomb was going to hit and where. But, right. you know, in relationships, that's where I had more of a difficult time um, accepting, you know, whatever happens, happens. I can't control the outcome. Uh, you know, it's unforeseen. I, I, I'm trying to gauge it. I'm trying to read it out and feel it. You just can't do that. And right. once you give into that whole heart, and I did in every other aspect of my life, but where do you give your whole heart? It's the person you're truly intimate with in, in every way. And it's your partner. It's your life partner. So, you know, why would you be so open and minded and universal in every aspect with that? You know, and that's when you realize, okay, there's still barriers that I have to tear down. I'm going to tear them down. Where, and it's, it's a constant progress. Where in your life do you feel like uh, you, I, I shouldn't say gained, developed that uncomfortability? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier the trauma. What, what led to that or what, how did that develop? Um, I think just being, growing up in the environment, which I just would summarize it as not the most emotionally stable situation. And I won't go into all the tears and reasons of why, but I always felt scared or uncomfortable. And I think that's part of the reason why I excelled so much in what I do as a field correspondent, because you know, we're paid to, you know, be the voice, get answers, hold people accountable, make things right. And that was just really um, countering what I'd gone through in some certain situations of feeling helpless growing up. And I started to take more control, but I was always uncomfortable because I'm in a world of, uh, you know, overwhelming emotion. Um, you know, my brother is bipolar and, and that's difficult, you know, when he's doing so good now, everything's is great right now, but I still am triggered by, you know, when he would have an episode and having to talk him down in a life threatening situation. And then I go to work and then, you know, my life's being threatened because I'm in gang territory at 10 o'clock at night. And then I go home and I try to have a love life. And it's like my heart's being, you know, jeopardized and I'm being pulled in so many different ways. I just couldn't take it. It was too much. You know, I wanted peace. I wanted something more stable. And I realized that's not really the life that I was given. And I'm, I have a very exciting and interesting and different, unique life. And so I thrive off that now. And it's made me really strong. But now it's about not being too strong to where I'm scaring people away. 
you know, and not being too intense and still being open and finding that balance. So I just think, you know, it's just, I had to go through all those rough patches to um, learn how to deal with certain situations. Uh, and, you know, mental illness, it, it, is, it is so tough. It is so tough. And I'm happy that it's such a big conversation and the stigma is going away. But to live it sometimes, it alters you. And that's what you don't want to do. You don't want a loved one who has some obstacles to affect your outlook and your emotions and your mindset. You still want to be free. And, and I think that's where the having to control comes from is when you deal with someone who's bipolar and it's, you know, all, all over the place and you have to steady their emotions. You want your steady at all times. Right, right. That's not life. And there's something powerful in letting those emotions take over you and still being okay. I want to say you first visited one of my classes at Cal State Northridge in maybe 2014, maybe 2015, somewhere around there. Yeah. And, and shortly after that visited when I was uh, filling in hosting at KFI. So let's say 2015 or 16 was one of the first times that we discussed your brother and his being bipolar. And of course that diagnosis at a time when, you know, just didn't really have all that many diagnoses of bipolar, at least it wasn't mainstream. Yeah. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't spoken of. It wasn't, you know, it's like, Oh no, I've my brother, he's, you know, he's just not well, or, you know, it just, you, you wouldn't, nobody would know what bipolar was 15 or 20 years ago. Like if you, if you brought that up at a party or something like that, you just, they're like, what, what is that? I don't know what that is. Right. Whereas, uh, and even in 2014 and 15, I feel like when we were discussing it on the air, it still wasn't mainstream fast forward just five or six years. And the conversation has, you know, developed and evolved. We keep using those words leaps and bounds to where those conversations, these conversations are thankfully, uh, mainstream. Well, yeah, because we need to know how as a family and loved ones to best handle it, um, because it is a very fragile state. And, you know, oftentimes it takes very well-known people. We've had a lot of celebrities come forward and say, I struggle with this. And Kanye West, West you know, Brittany, I, there's a ton of list of people that, you know, have talked openly about it. And that makes other people feel it's okay. And it's the, the stigma is, is relaxing. And now it's something to just have a conversation about is, you know, it's just how people throw out crazy. That person's crazy, you know? No, they just need more control over a little nozzle that many of us have better control of. That's all. And why don't we learn how to best help our loved one out when that moment comes. There's times where I'm going to need help. I'm going to need someone to say, you know, even if it's the minute thing as my next project, I have anxiety over, can I do it? It's so big. I would I want someone to come along with, you could get through this. You could do it. It's just the same as with mental illnesses, you know, it's just kind of like getting them through it, whatever way that is best for them. I mean, but you just, you can't write people off. You know, you just right. can't say like, I don't want to deal with it. Or they're crazy. That bothers me. It's like, no, get in there, get your hands dirty, you know, love them, 
maybe love them differently, try something else, but let them know it's going to be okay. You mentioned, uh, you know, that your your brother is doing so much better now. So good. How do you feel like that has helped how you're doing? Oh, I, I, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm on top of the world. I think that I've learned that when things are okay with my family, I feel limitless. I feel like bring it on. I could do it all. You know, what I have, is it enough? I'm going to, you know, then stack up this project, this deal, this relationship. I mean, I just feel like <laughs> sky's the limit. And I realized it's so and also so important to who you bring into your life and allow in your universe and the energy you allow in. And I'm so blessed that I have incredible people in my life that I respect you know, I admire and they also give me just that needed boost in that vibe and that energy that I need to make me feel strong and to keep going on things that are, you know, I'm tackling some big stuff yeah. coming from the career that I have to where I want to be. And the industry is super fickle. It's, you know, you're a star one day, you're forgotten the next, you work constantly, you're overwhelmed the projects, you sit for a year, you know, it's feast or famine. And you really want to be stable in every aspect of life. So who I allow in my universe have gotten really strict. So I am not afraid to say, you know what? It was nice to meet you. You know, there's wonderful things about you. I like this and that, but you're not really for me. This isn't really my, you know, what I want in my life. So take care, whether it's a friendship, a business relationship or a relationship. It, the energy and where someone's head is at is real and how they communicate is really important. You know, I think I used to be in a situation where it was a lot of unhealthy communication and I would just absorb it. And then that would come out of me eventually. Yeah. So that's the number one thing I look for in people is how are they communicating with me? So during moments of uncertainty and stress and anxiety, how do they communicate? How am I communicating? How can I be better? And that's the day-to-day challenge. And that also, you know, helps me as a writer because if I'm all over the place up here, you know, I'm not going to tell a good story, which is what I, my purpose in life, why I'm here. So what's next for you? Oh, so we have, um, so Killer Jeans, we signed with Podcast One. And I think it's just, you know, the beginning with them. They're so good. We have a merchandise line coming out. Oh, I never merch. thought I would see today. We have a merch line. It's McCarty so merch. Good. Outfits are so good. And um, a bunch of stuff. And, and no, I mean, I have a lot of things that I'm, some big stuff that I, I plan to tackle that I'm really excited about. But just step by step, you know, and just getting focusing in on killer jeans right now. We have a lot of exclusives that helped me go back into the tele. You know, I'm always going to dabble in television, but I got to say it's super nice to not be forced to do it every day. (laughs) I was going to ask, how was that transition for you going from, okay, I've got to turn and burn all kinds of packages, you know, today, tomorrow, the next day, five days a week, six days, sometimes seven or whatever it is, depending on breaking news and whatnot to now okay, this project, it may take three months. It may take, you know, X number of weeks. How was that transition? I I joked about it in the beginning about, you know, what I showered. (laughs) It was so bad towards the end of my news career, because think about it. If you're forced to look a certain way, be a certain way, you know, it's the whole aesthetic of television. You kind of resent it. 
and I'm working 12 hour days. It's high stress. And so, you know, there's tons of videos out there where you could just tell I stopped caring, not about my job, but just about the aesthetic. I was a mess. I had no makeup on. I did the hand comb. I was just, you know, <laughs> went and did. It was just all about the story and less about I'm on television. And the television aspect of it was daunting to me. So now when I watch like local news and I see people so put together day after day, I'm like, how are they doing that? You know, it was just such a grind. But now, you know, if I want to sit around and not shower for three days and just right around the clock, I could do it. There's no pressure. There's some deadlines, but I have the freedom to do what I want to do and really nurture a story, which is so, oh, oh man, I have to tell you, I don't know if I ever told you the story. Um, do you remember Jimmy Kimmel yeah. used to make fun of us? doing these segments called um, Unnecessary Censorship. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Aaron, I can't tell you how many times I was on that segment, right? But we're not. <laughs> it's just kind of like they cut to a live shot and they make us like cuss or say something right. that we didn't mean to say. Yeah, it's the, hysterical, They'll, they'll bleep right? the word, you know, pants or something, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Or they make you, it make it seems like you're like you're swearing or something yes. like that. So there was this one time and it just is a good example of how hard that I was constantly pushed to my limit. So I'm live on Hollywood Boulevard of all places, right? Tourist central, you put a camera, it's always going to yeah. be chaos. Yeah. Then you put a live camera. Oh boy, like who knows, right? So I, I, the story was about the governor of all things. And I'm doing my thing. <laughs> and the next thing you know, like I think it was 24 hours later. I'm watching Jimmy Kimmel and this guy says my name. He was like, there's this local reporter in LA, Melissa McCarty. I kid you not. Like I died inside. I was like, Oh no, what did I do? I had no idea until I watched the show that when I was live that whole time talking about the government, like a hundred degree heat, all these people in chaos behind me, I was apparently behind a, a jumbotron of like, an obese baby in a diaper doing like a provocative <laughs> dance the entire time on like a jumbo drum behind me. So he was just like, Hey, Melissa, journalism 101, look behind you. Oh no, no, no. And I wanted to write him so bad. And oh. be like, you know how many things I have to worry about in a day? I did look behind me. Like, you know, it was just, yeah. it was so yeah. fun, but there's so many things that you have to worry about. There's so much responsibility to the from the big to the small that it's just such a grind and I'm just at peace now that I'm out of it. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine that and and, and it is it is a grind. People I feel like they get that more now because of all the different reporters and anchors who take people behind the scenes, you know, with the mm -hmm. Facebook lives and the Instagram lives and things like that. Uh, but it, it is a performance. Yes, we are storytellers. Yes, we're reporters, but we still have to perform. The, you know, the, the, the news gets the money it gets because of ratings. How do you get ratings? Well, you entertain people so that they keep coming back for more. And it, it's, it's a performance. But not only that, I mean, I don't know if you could see, but it looks like I have a little bald spot right here. 
that's from being burned on live television covering the fires here in SoCal. You know, I was at the time I was the only reporter ever to go live from an ember storm, not the smartest, but like, you know, it's the it's the level that you're at. It's, yeah. you know, it's being in gang territory at 11 o'clock at night. It's, you know, it's and in some cases I've been live during active gunfire. I've been burned on live television. I've almost burned alive. I mean, I had I was attacked in a riot and I had glass shattered all over me and I had to go to the hospital. It's it's things that people don't realize what we're doing to get them a story. And that's actually what's cool about, you know, the podcast that I'm doing, Killer Jeans, is we're going to now start to incorporate some like filler episodes of the, what was going on yep. behind the scenes when I'm confronting this accused killer, what was actually happening. And, you know, because there's moments that I'm like, I'm dead. This is it. You know, this is this is my life. I'm dying on this sidewalk right now. And 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 people don't know that. And that was more so in the true crime. Um, you know, when I was full blown into true, true crime, which I am now. Right. But local news is really a variation of that. Yes. For what I was doing. I wasn't doing the feature stories. I was doing the hard stuff. So it's just, it's the danger, it's the heat, it's the 12 hours in a truck, it's the stress, it's the ticking clock, you know, and it's just not being able to have a life and always being rushed. And a real storyteller, don't rush me, let me do my thing. And that's why it was the biggest and most amazing experience to do that Audible series, you know, with AYR Media and Carrie, because... They just set me free. I locked myself in a room for three months and I just, it was a puzzle piece. And it was, uh, it's, an, it, it's, it's what I live for, you know? Um, when are you going to finally get on stage at a comedy club and just be a stand up comedian already? It's totally repressed. I, I, I get it. I know it. Everybody, you, you've mentioned it earlier. It's like, wow, you're actually funny when you're not, you know, uh, uh, you know, staring a, a, a laser beam into my soul. But uh, what, <laughs> when are you, you going to finally just do it? Just do it. So many of my friends have, okay, I, I debated sharing this story with you, but because you, it's really funny. It's really, really, really funny. Um, do we have time? It's probably we got about time. five minutes. We got time. All right. My friends have said that I should do it. By the way, the answer is F to the no. I'm never going to do it. <laughs> I'm never doing it. I've got enough on my plate. And, you know, yeah, it's just, if my friends laugh at me, that's great. We're going to replay All this, right, by so, the way, when you actually are doing it. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is I don't know when I'm, when I'm, people think I'm most funny when I have no idea that I'm being funny. Like, I don't know. I just like, I'm being me. And they're yeah. just, that's when they think it's funny. So, but my life did actually become a real life Seth Rogen movie a few months ago. And so I haven't talked about this, like a few people know, cause I'm still traumatized, but it is super funny. Oh God. So this was when my special came out on the black widower, uh, Thomas Randolph. So I got a lot of press, Dr. Oz, Access Hollywood. And I'm here at home and I have to do like a media blitz for it, yeah. for Killer Jeans. And so <laughs> Carrie had, Carrie, who I live with, um, you know, she she was in Florida and she had one of her friends. Are you dying? You need some water? I, I'm okay. Choking? I'm okay. The whole house, by the way, is getting over a cold. It's like, it's like the pandemic is over. Let's go out. Oh, we all got sick. Yeah. People can still get sick. People don't realize that. Yeah, I know. Um, 
So I think I, I'm going to just kill myself to... with the straw. What am I doing? <laughs> Who knows? <clears throat> Carrie was in Florida and it's a, it's a nice, you know, three bedroom, three bathroom house. So she had a friend and actress staying here and which made it difficult for me to constantly be broadcasting live. And when I'm broadcasting live from home, I, I freak out. I'm not going to lie. Like I want quiet on the set and I get really, <laughs> really nervous because it's live TV, you know? Yeah. And so I wanted to go flawlessly. So my best friend, and I won't say who, but my best friend was in Aspen at the time out of town. And I always have a key to her place. So I said, Hey, can I stay there and do my TV stuff from your house where it's more quiet? So she said, yeah, go for it. And I, I went to pack a bag for about four days, stayed at her house, doing all my TV hits. And then I had a friend come over and I think I made soup. We watched The Bachelor. She goes home. I'm in bed by 10 o'clock. And all of a sudden, I just kind of start moving. And I think like, what's happening? This is weird. So everything's moving. And I open my eyes and everything is dark, but everything is moving like a bunch of waves. So I'm half naked, turn on the light, looking around like this and everything's like a swirl. So I realize I'm hallucinating and I've never done that before. And at the time I'm thinking, oh my God, my friend must have had COVID and she gave it to me and it accelerated in my body. And now I'm hallucinating. I need to go to the hospital. But then I'm still a little rational, even though I'm hallucinating, which you didn't think those, you know, go together. So I thought, can you get COVID that quick and it accelerate to hallucination? So I was like, right. no, that's probably not it. So I go to like get up and walk around and my legs aren't moving. I can barely move my legs. And I'm shuffling along into the living room and something dawns on me. And so I shuffle into her kitchen and I open the food cupboard. Oh. Mind you, let me repeat that. I open the food cupboard where there's food. And I pull out a candy bar that I ate, almost all of it. And I realize that's not a candy bar. That's drugs. But what kind of drug? I didn't know. Let me tell you this. You probably don't know this about me. I've never done a drug in my life. I mean, CBD. You I've did. smoked pot. You did that like, night. <laughs> I've never done a drug in my life. And so I know I'm on drugs, but I don't know what. And so I'm calling her and I'm calling her and 11 calls, no answer. I'm sending her a photo of the chocolate bar. What is this? Is this drugs? What is this? imagine everything she woke up to the next day, which is when I heard from her. So then I realized, Oh, another friend of mine, I think knows what it is. So I call another friend and I say, what is this? And I said, is this drugs? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, what is it? I, I ate it. And she said, Oh no, oh, how much? And I said, like, I don't know a lot. And she said, there's bars, count the bars. And I'm counting. And it was like, three and a half bars. And she just said, Oh no. Oh, hon, kept saying, oh no. you just had mushrooms and that stuff is oh, strong. No. And she was like, I had one bar and I was hallucinating all night. So I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And I'm just like, help me. And she was like, I, I don't, I can't, I, I got my kid. I don't want to do. 
hang up on her. And then I don't know what to do. And I'm freaking out and I can tell what's happening in my body. I'm going to completely do something weird, right? And so I, I call this guy that I don't even know him very well. I just remember he, he said, we were kind of chatting, you know, yeah. a little bit. And I wanted to learn more. And he told me he did mushrooms during New Year's Eve. So I called him and he answers, it's like 11 o'clock at night. And I said, I just had a candy bar and it wasn't candy. And he's laughing. And then I just burst into tears and I'm, I'm hysterical. I am, I'm not a crier. I haven't cried in years. I'm like, as if the years of tears came out of me. <laughs> just and say, I'm just like, the, I think the I'm veil has been lifted. It's like porn. And I was like, I think <laughs> I'm going to call 911. And such a good man. He has a science background and he was just immediately stopped joking, got into this like Zen mode, like my drug guru. And he wasn't giving me an option. He was just super calm. And he said, no, you're not going to call 911 because you took mushrooms. It's not going to have a physical effect. It's a hallucinogenic. What's happening and playing out in your mind right now is it's a hallucinogenic and a hospital can't help you. And so he started to like, you know, walk me through. He said, are you feeling a wave of nausea? And I said, Yes, it's powerful, but I don't want to throw up. And so he then broke down what I was feeling in my body, in my mind, scientifically, and what was coming. And at the end of the speech, he said, you're not going to like this. He said, it's going to be really hippy dippy, but you're going to have to be all in. You can't fight it. You can't resist it. You took four times the amount you should have. And I, and I, you know, and I called an overdose, but my friend's like, you get overdose on mushrooms. Yes, you can, <laughs> you know, yes, you can. And so he was just like, you, you're going to have to give into it. And so, I mean, I was hysterical. And then I, so I remember being on the phone with him and then I start text cause I'm alone. And I start texting my friend that had left two hours prior. And this is what everybody needs in their life. A doer. You need one friend in your life who is a doer. I text her overdosed please help me bring water must stay calm keep me calm she responded on my way she was over in 15 minutes but then i realized during the 15 minute process i had to somehow get to the door that was down a flight of stairs and i could walk <laughs> couldn't use oh, my no. legs so no. then like i morphed into a, a, like a, a two-year-old baby who's like in a diaper mind you half naked i get on my butt with this hand i'm holding the rail and i'm sliding down the stairs like this step by step and in this phone is still the dude on yeah. speaker oh he's he's still on okay calm. okay he stayed on the phone like half the night oh my god um it's a shame it didn't work out and so um <laughs> She, I opened the door and I'll never forget the look on her face because I was out of my mind. I, I hallucinated from 10 at night till nine in the morning. And it was the most of all the things that have happened to me that you know of. This was the worst. Oh my God. It was the worst because I mean, I was in a state of fear. It was like, I mean, imagine hallucinating. Okay. That feeling, a strong hallucination. Yeah. Now imagine living that every second of every minute of every hour for 10 hours. And it wasn't yeah. like a voluntary thing. 
And so it, it was literally the worst. You're like, I didn't life. sign up for this. And it was very, it is kind of funny because if I didn't have those people to call or that guy to call, I would have called 911. And then I'm like a crime reporter calling to say I drugged myself on accident. Like it would have been a nightmare, you know? <laughs> so, but. People would have covered it and like, then she called 911. <laughs> or did she? And then, and it just goes from there. Oh my God. That's so scary though. That's so scary. Now, so- uh, are, are you, are you signing up for the mushroom train anytime soon? Is it, was that your first and last? So the funny thing is, you know, I started talking about this to like a few people and they're just like, well, I microdose all the time, but you don't actually hallucinate. And I'm like, I didn't mean to do it. So it was so funny. <laughs> There's no microdosing there. <laughs> yeah. That's like overdose. So when I finally got a hold of my best friend, it's so funny. Instead of like, are you okay? Is your brain okay? Do you have is I mean, oh my God. She said the first response was her. She literally said, Man, does this mean you're never gonna do it? I wanted to try it. Now you're never gonna do it, are you? And I'm like, okay, too soon. It's too soon. It's too yeah. soon. Oh my gosh. Maybe just yeah. a bar. Maybe just half a bar. <laughs> Maybe just half a bar. I don't know. I mean, I, I got a buddy who keeps like trying a to smidge, get me to a smidge of a bar. I, I got huh? a buddy who keeps trying to to get me to to do mushrooms on a hiking trip with him. Oh, so I know people that hike on it too. Yeah. yeah. I think I can't say that. I mean, I am pretty traumatized, but I can't rule anything out. And I I kept thinking, what's this all about? What's the hype over it? Because I know mushrooms do a lot of profound things, and I've watched a lot of documentaries on it, and I know the value of it. But when you go to a zero to a hundred, like everything else in my life, it's just kind of like not the best footing, you know? Well, and plus it's not even something you expected to encounter. You know, I wasn't it's... a willing participant. Right. <laughs> I was by myself. But you have to, you have to promise, I think, is, is she still your friend? Oh yeah. She's okay. like, well, I mean. You yeah. have to promise you're going to, you're going to do that with her though. You can't just like, oh, I'm totally going to mushroom trip with somebody else. I'm sorry. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I probably should have a better experience about it. I just remember calling my mom the next day and she was like, oh my God, I'm sleeping in the middle of the night and you're suffering? And she's like, oh. you could have had a stroke being in fear oh, for that God. long. And, oh and then I'm like, really? And I'm Googling brain damage on <laughs> mushrooms, <laughs> stroke on mushrooms. Oh my God. Melissa, it yeah. was so good to catch up with you. Cannot wait for what's next. I know you got a lot of stuff going on with the Killer Genes podcast. Congrats on the Bitter Blood, Kasem versus Kasem Audible series. Congrats on everything you've got going on and really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And just know you are such a special person. You are a gem in this world and your energy, I feel it. I feel it in your text messages. Thank you. I appreciate that, Melissa. Take care. All right, bye. You can watch this episode on YouTube and DBNA TV. Follow the Aaron Bender podcast on your favorite platforms and link to it at AaronBender.com. That's also where you can find all my social media. If you have guest ideas or comments, email me, AaronBenderMedia at gmail.com. Be well, and thanks for listening.